Well, good morning. Uh, if you have uh, your Bibles, please open with me to Psalm 7. And uh, as you are turning there, uh, as as Charles Darwin was uh, putting together his uh, theory of evolution, uh, he sought to to use his ideas uh, to try and explain everything in the world around him. He, he understood that if his theory was going to be proved true, it needed to be able to uh, explain everything. Uh, but there were many things that he re- began to realize that his theory could not explain. Uh, one such problem uh, that Darwin encountered uh, was what he uh, referred to as the abominable mystery uh, of flowering plants. See, flowering plants contain uh, both a, a male and a female component within the same plant, and uh, the male component produces pollen, uh, which germinates on the female component, the stigma. And the, the plant's stigma produces a substance toxic to its own pollen, but not to the pollen of others. And the pollen that has an antidote uh, to all other plants' toxins accepts its own. Now, the only way that this could have uh, evolved was if the two things took place at the very same time. Uh, and evolutionists can't figure out how that was possible because it's really not. You, you can't, random chance doesn't create two things that can evolve at the exact same time. Uh, and this is uh, pretty amazing. And it's been the subject of study over years and years. And uh, there's been a recent study published last month in the Journal of Genetics, where uh, a team of uh, evolutionary geneticists uh, and uh, game theorists and applied mathematical experts came together at the university, uh, or I'm sorry, at Austria's Institute of Science and Technology, and they tried to to figure all of this out. And do you know what conclusion they came to? They still couldn't figure it out. Uh, so after after months of study and realizing, hey, there's just too many options uh, for this. It doesn't it doesn't make sense. Evolution cannot explain, as Darwin called it, the the abominable mystery of flowering plants, which is kind of a big deal, right? Uh, if evolution is is going to be a theory of everything and explain who we are and how we came uh, to be this way and where we are all headed, it better be able to explain something as simple as that. But there are also many other things that evolution is unable to explain. Darwin's theory cannot, for instance, explain the evolution of human language. It can't explain how language came into existence. And again, this is something that's been discussed for 150 plus years since Darwin's theory was published. And in addition to that, there's something else that Darwin's theory cannot explain. And that is the human understanding of morality. And what what is morality? You can't put your hands on it. You can't touch it. But it's an inner sense that we all have of right and wrong. We know justice and we know injustice. And it's easy for us to identify those things. And evolution can't explain it. But a worldview based upon the truth of God's word, the Bible, can easily explain it. Do you know what that is inside you that is provoked each and every time you see injustice? Because how do we usually respond when we see injustice? Anger. And nobody had to teach you how to be angry. That was just your natural response. Uh, to, what does a child usually say when he perceives uh, injustice? That's not fair. Exactly. They, they just have this, this inner sense of right and wrong. And the Bible would say that that is the image of God in us. That all of us have been created in God's image, Genesis 1, verses 26 to 28. And that is what is provoked when we experience injustice. We know this is how it should not be and that there is something better. We know, have an understanding of good, which is why we are so uh, responsive to what is bad or evil. And this image of God is what provokes and bothers us when we perceive any injustice. And... And especially when we are falsely accused. Uh, there's nothing like being falsely accused. It, it's almost easier to be rightly accused of something that you have done. Because when, when we have sinned and when we, when we are accused and we're like, yeah, we can own that. We can confess. We can repent. There's a way and a path to restoration. But when we are falsely accused, there's not, there's no clear path to restoring our name. Because we can't repent of something that we haven't done. 
Well, we can't necessarily disprove all of these accusations or allegations against us. And so on the one hand, false accusations are so much more difficult to address. They're they're more difficult to bear emotionally and and spiritually. And nothing quite gets us as upset as the injustice of being falsely accused. And so what are we to do when we are falsely accused? Because it's just a matter of time before that happens. Whether it's with somebody in our work, in our community, or even among our own family members. We are accused of, of doing something that we have not done, where uh, motives are impugned upon us and assumed. What are we to do? How are we to respond? And that's what brings us to Psalm 7. If you look at me at the, the title of Psalm 7, it says, a, a Shigayon of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush, a Benjaminite. Uh, and uh, this, this word for a, a Shigayon, sometimes you see these introductory terms in the titles of the Psalms and you're like, what is that? Well, that, that word means that this is a, a very emotional Song. This is something that uh, is conveys agitation, uh, and it was intended to be a solo, uh, something that David alone sang to the Lord. And that that word for shigayon means to to stray or to stagger, and it may may point to the an, a melody that's kind of offbeat uh, and unusual, and it conveys the emotion that the, the the writer felt at the time of writing. And we see that it was intended to be saying to the Lord, and it was in response to a circumstance that was taking place in David's life. And this is the extent of what we know about the circumstance. Some guy named Cush, and he was a Benjaminite. Other than that, we don't know. This is the only time this person is mentioned in Scripture, so we're not sure what the occasion was, what the the false accusation was. Uh, All we have is what we can pull out of this psalm. Uh, But what we do know is how David responded to these false accusations, how he responded to this injustice that he was being accused of. That is what we do know. Uh, and what we see here is David writing out a prayer that he lifted up to God on this occasion. And what we have in this inspired song and prayer of David was written nearly 3,000 years ago. So you're thinking, how, how can something 3,000-year-olds inform us and teach us? Well, it shows us how to respond to false allegations. How to respond when when we are falsely accused. And and some of you might be out there saying, well, I already know the answer to this. I, I know the godly answer is just pray. Right? And you're like, yes, that, that's the safe answer. Absolutely. That's kind of uh, in every single trial that we face in life, what can we always do? And we can always turn to the Lord in prayer. That's always the correct answer. It's kind of like when you're in Awana and you're asked a question, you're like, well, Jesus is the answer. I'm like, yes, that's kind of true. Praying is always a correct answer. But what we also see here is three thoughts, three three attitudes to bring to our, our prayer when we are crying out to God for justice. So it's not just pray, but how should we pray? What should we pray? With what attitude should we approach the Lord when we are crying out to Him because we have been falsely accused? When we when we are desiring justice and, and we want it so desperately that we, we just fall to our knees and say, Lord, you need to intervene here. You need to act. And what we will see this morning in, in this psalm are 17 verses, but ultimately three thoughts that we can keep in mind as we pray for justice. And these three thoughts will help us to set our, our minds and our emotions in order so that we can respond prayerfully to false accusations when they are made against us. And it's only a matter of time until you are accused of something. It takes place pretty much every single day in a household, right? Did you do that? No. Are you sure? Yeah. Uh, it, this is constantly happening. We are constantly uh, facing accusations, assumptions, and we need to understand how to prayerfully respond in a way that glorifies God. Well, look with me at this first thought that we should keep in mind, that when praying for justice, carefully examine your own heart first. And look with me at verses 1 through 5. David writes, O Lord my God, in you 
do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rending it in pieces with none to deliver. O Lord, my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, let the enemy pursue my soul and overtake it. Let him trample my life to the ground and lay my glory to the dust. Selah. As we as we look at these first five verses, you might have noticed that there's a, a phrase that is repeated there in verse 1 and in verse 3. And what we see is David introducing kind of these two, two statements. Uh, and the first one, he is crying out to God for salvation. O Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. He says, you are the one that I have sought refuge in. And if you think back in the Psalms, this is, this is a recurring theme, this idea of, of refuge of safety, of protection. And if you remember back in Psalm 2, at the end of Psalm 2, the introduction to the, the songbook, uh, the introduction of these big ideas that we need to grasp and understand, who are we all encouraged to seek refuge in in Psalm 2? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God's anointed and chosen King. And here David is saying, hey, God, I've done that. I've run to you. You are the one that I desire to be protected by. You are my refuge. And he's pleading to God, save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. And then David David paints a picture for us. He uses some powerful language and, and language that would have been familiar to him and a scene that might have been familiar to him when he was a shepherd. During David's time in uh, ancient Near East, there were lions that roamed about in that area. And if you're a shepherd and there's lions about, who are you sure to encounter at one point or another? A lion. And so David paints this picture and says, God, I need you to save me. I need you to deliver me because if my pursuers catch me, possibly the implication of these false accusations, that have, these lies that have been told about David are forcing him to flee for his life. They're forcing him to go on the run. And if he's caught, these accusations are so severe, there's going to be no mercy for David. It's going to be punishment. It's going to be deliverance according to these false accusations. And what he says is, God, it's going to be as if a lion were to get a hold of a sheep. That's what's going to happen if my pursuers catch me. If, If they meet up with me, it's over. So, Lord, I need deliverance. I need your help. And that is the amazing power of false accusations. Even if they're untrue, they can have very real consequences and create a very real danger. And that is what David is experiencing. And that's why he runs to God asking for help in that first statement, Oh Lord, my God. But then something amazing happens in verses 3 through 5. He introduces this, this second statement, Oh Lord, my God. And what he begins to do is is David pauses and looks inwardly to see if there is any truth to these accusations. Look back again at verses 3 through 5. He says, O Lord my God, if I have done this, if there is wrong in my hands, if I have repaid my friend with evil or plundered my enemy without cause, Lord, if these things are true, let justice come upon me. That is what David is saying. That is some serious introspection. And that is his desire for justice. Lord, bring justice to this situation. And if I'm the guilty party, may you judge me. And then notice at the end of verse 5, that that word that we've seen before, that one little word, Selah, and it, it indicates that it's a, that the psalmist wants us to pause and reflect on what he has just said. that it, there's, a, there's a weightiness to what was just written and, and we're to pause and reflect upon it because David has just prayed a prayer of judgment upon himself. How often do we do that? And he uses a curse formula, right? You, you look look at what he says. If, if, if there's wrong in my hands, if I've done this, if I've done this, if I've repaid my, my friend 
or plundered my enemy. He says this, and then he he introduces three other consequences in verse 5. So, Lord, if I've done any of these things, let these things come upon me. Because may it be that I am trampled. May it be that my enemies do catch up to me and overtake me. And may my glory be trampled into the dust. Says God, if I'm the guilty one, then judge me and bring judgment upon me. David takes the time to step back and examine himself and to evaluate the charges, the accusations that have been made against him to see if there's any truth to them. Says God, if there's any truth, then judge me. And I think that's pretty safe to say that's not our normal way that we respond to accusations. Am I right? Uh, one one day during my, my first year of, of seminary, uh, I was uh, living with a Christian family that had taken me in when I was in college. And uh, I was in the kitchen uh, making a pot of coffee because I had just uh, started drinking coffee when I entered seminary. It's what you need. Uh, and uh, the, the mom of this family that I was living with, she, she came into the kitchen and she we, we began to talk. And o- over the course of our conversation, she began to kind of, I guess, instruct me a little bit and kind of bring something to my attention uh, that needed to be addressed. And uh, I kind of... Uh, Kind of did the typical, you know, 20, 22 year old response of, oh yeah, yeah, I know. Uh, and she knew what I was doing. She knew that I was in essence scoffing and brushing aside everything that she was saying. And, and it was remarkable. She, she just said something very simple and it, and her words hit home. After I said, oh yeah, 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 I know. She said, Thomas, a fool doesn't listen. That's how, and I just began to realize, oh, that, that's what I am being right now. You know, in my, in my flesh, what did you just call me? Uh, but, but I began to realize, yeah, I, I was completely brushing aside the instruction that she was bringing. And Proverbs over and over says that a fool won't be instructed. A fool won't listen. But a wise person will, will step back, even if these accusations are so outlandish. And so far out there, a wise person will step back and say, God, is there any truth to what is being said? And that is what we see David doing here. Even though these accusations are so serious and he is he's certain of his innocence. And, and in these verses, he is in essence protesting his innocence. God, I'm not deserving of these things. But if, if in some way I'm missing something, Lord, then judge me. But that is what we what we need to take note of, because my response was the exact opposite of David's response here. His enemies made accusations against him, so he evaluates these accusations. He says, God, all right. Is there a truth to these things? And David knew that if he was going to pray for justice, and every time, anytime we pray for justice, we are in essence holding up some type of righteous standard and saying, God, these people have broken your righteous standard. Now you need to judge them. But David understood something. If he's going to do that, if he's going to say, if he's going to pray for justice upon others, that same righteous standard also applies to who? To him. Absolutely. Now, what's, what's the world's f- most f- favorite Bible verse? It's from the, from the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. Judge not lest ye be judged. And most people take that of, well, you just, you can't judge anybody else at any point in time. And that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, realize that the same way that you judge others, if you were judged in that same way, how would you measure up? If you want to take God's righteous standard to others, you better apply it to yourself first and understand that you will be judged by that same standard. David understood that. And when we understand that, and if we began to do this, if we began to, when uh, even the smallest accusation was made against us, did you eat the last piece of bread? Uh, maybe. Uh, or And it goes more and more serious from there. But when accusations are brought to our attention, if instead of just immediately brushing them aside, if we stepped back and prayed as David prayed, a prayer of self-examination, looking at his own heart first and foremost. And this isn't the only occasion that David does this. Listen to Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. David says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me 
and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. David's prayer is, Lord, examine me and see if there's any way that I'm, I'm wandering from you. And then if I am, Lord, correct my, correct my path. Guide me in the way that I should go. And then also in, in Psalm 19, verses 12 and 14, 12 through 14. David says this, he says, Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgressions. He's saying, God, I can't figure out my own sins. Help me to examine my own heart, to rightly understand myself. And then verse 14 David says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, if we're going to begin to pray for justice, we need to begin by examining ourselves first. That's what we see in these verses. David is praying to God for salvation and protesting his innocence. And at the same time, he's acknowledging that he himself needs to be examined by God. He's not above God's examination. And that he would need to be brought to justice if he was guilty of what he's accused of. And after carefully examining his own heart and calling for God to, to examine him as well, then he switches his focus. And it, which brings us to the second thought that, that we need to keep in mind when praying for justice, that we need to entrust your case to God's righteous judgment. Look with me at verses 6 through 13. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake from me. You have appointed a judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you. Over it return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness and according to the integrity that is in me. Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous. You who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. If a man does not repent, God will wet his sword He has bent and readied his bow, and he has prepared for him his deadly weapons, making his arrows fiery shafts. Verse 6 brings a a dramatic change to David's prayer and in his tone. As he moves from, from humble examination of himself, he begins to plead for God to act. He says, God, please act in this situation. Justice is needed. And we can take this section and break it down further into three three parts. Verses 6 through 8, you could say that, that David is making a prayer for God to act quickly. A prayer for God to act quickly. And he makes this request of God, these requests of God in quick succession in verse 6. It says, arise, lift yourself up, awake for me. This idea of uh, these chain of words gives the impression that, that at least to David, it has felt as if God is asleep. That God is, is nowhere to be found in the middle of his injustice, right? Why else would he say, hey God, wake up. God, lift yourself up. Arise. Come to my aid. That is what he is implying. He says, And not that God has been asleep on the job, but that's what it feels like when we are experiencing injustice, when we are being falsely accused. It sure sure seems like something is missing, something is is off in terms of God's power and sovereignty. He's like, God, why are you allowing these things to happen? So David cries out to God, God, awaken and arise, come to my aid. And then... He says, you have appointed a judgment. The idea of you have declared a time to make things right. And, and in verse 7, he, he begins to use language of a, of a courtroom or, or of, a, of a, uh, a judgment. He says, Lord, gather all of the peoples. Lord, gather all of the nations together 
and bring about judgment. Judge the peoples. Let the assembly of the peoples be gathered about you, and then, Lord, you rule over it on high. Lord, you gather everyone and then show that you are the judge and rule and reign over that gathering of the nations as the holy and sovereign judge that you are. And then in verse 8, David says, the Lord judges the peoples. And then he also, once again, what does he ask of God? He says, judge me. Judge me, Lord. And David is, after examining himself, he's still convinced of, of his integrity, of his innocence in these matters that he is accused of. That's, that's why in this occasion he can pray that prayer, where he can say, Lord, judge me accordingly. If I've done something, judge me for it. If I'm innocent, Lord, vindicate me. Establish me as the one who is being falsely accused here. That is what he is crying out to God for. Judge me, O Lord, according to my righteousness. And that's amazing of just David's repeated, in his desire for justice, he is even willing to accept judgment upon himself. And we see that over and over again. He he prays for God to act quickly. And then in verses 9 and 10, he he prays to God to act in his defense. Look at what he says. He says, Oh, let the evil of the wicked come to an end. And may you establish the righteous, you who test the minds and hearts, O righteous God. My shield is with God, who saves the upright in heart. See, David David is saying, all right, gather everyone together and bring bring justice, Lord. And he prays for the wicked to be judged and for the righteous to be established. And you need both. Uh, if, if there is is great wickedness and sin in a land, in a city, it needs to be judged. It needs to be handled rightly. And not only do the wicked need to be judged, but also the righteous need to be established. They need to be vindicated. And God, David appeals to God as the one who is righteous. He says, Lord, you are the judge overall. And your judgments will be righteous. That is why David is appealing to God. Because he knows he is the righteous one. And that God will save the upright in heart. David believes that God is a righteous God who will be his shield. This is a different kind of shield that we've seen before. It's a kind of uh, small circular shield used in hand-to-hand combat. Previously, we saw a shield that was, you know, the the length of the body and protected an entire soldier. But this is hand-to-hand combat, short-order battle. He says, God, you are my shield. And you are the one who saves the upright in heart. So David is convinced that in this situation he will be vindicated because of his innocence. So he prays for God to to act quickly and he prays for God to act in his defense. And then in verses 11 to 13, he prays for God to act with deadly force. If you if you notice the language that's used in those verses and what is spoken about God. David in verse 11 initially echoes echoes this truth that God is a righteous judge. Uh, and the righteousness of God is an encouragement to the righteous, right? It, it is an encouragement to God's people that God is a righteous judge because they are in right relationship with him. And at the same time, the righteousness of God should strike fear into the heart of the wicked, should it not? Uh, and, and that is what David is is praying for here. He says, God is a righteous judge who feels indignation every day. There's not a day where God is not hostile and upset with sin and injustice in the world. And then I would draw your attention to that first line in verse 12. He says, if, so this is a conditional statement, if a man does not repent, if a man doesn't turn from his sin, and what we've already seen in Psalms is that Psalms uh, declare a theology that all are in sin, all are in rebellion against God. All have turned and gone their own way, made ourselves to be God. And what we are called to do is to to forsake our sin and turn back to God, 
to do a, a U-turn, 180 degrees, to, to leave our sin behind us uh, and go in pursuit of Jesus. That is what we are called to do. That is the message of the gospel. It's seen here. It's seen on nearly every page of the Bible. And that's always a conditional statement. Hey, if we repent, we receive grace and mercy, compassion and kindness. But if we don't, look at look at the language that, that David used. There's this, this language of, of, of warfare. You look at he talks about God sharpening his sword and having his bow bent and ready, that he's prepared his deadly weapons uh and, and fiery arrows. These are all indications of of God's judgment. And again, this is strong language. Psalms doesn't pull any punches when it comes to words. Right? It's a strong language. But we need to understand the oppression that David is experiencing. And there is a, a biblical truth that should bring hope to all of those who are oppressed, all of those who are falsely accused, all of those who are persecuted and attacked and and what is that truth? It is the judgment of God, the, the righteous judgment of Almighty Creator, God. The doctrine of God's judgment should bring us hope. And, and let me explain why this is so, because some of you might be saying, well, why is that? Why is praying for God's judgment a good thing? Let me, let me explain why. Let me give you an example. In, uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo, Right now, there are several warring factions, and it is the, the the practice of each of these factions that enemy combatants will will go and have for a long time go and rape women and young girls and murder them, oftentimes in front of their own families. And and when you hear that, when you when you can imagine the injustice that those living in that nation feel and experience each and every day and the fear that they live with because this oppression and this injustice could come upon them at any moment. There has to be judgment for those actions. There there has to be. If there is no judgment for murder and, and rape and, and, and all of these heinous, heinous crimes that, that, again, every society will know that rape and murder is wrong, Right? And where does that come from? The image of God within us. But if there is no judgment for these actions, what makes those actions different from going and washing your car or going and buying groceries? If, there, if there's no moral evaluation of our actions and there is no judgment for our actions, then there really is no difference. And that is also something that the, the evolutionary worldview is lacking. How can you condemn anybody for anything? That there's no standard of right and wrong. There's no standard of morality. We say there must be judgment upon such injustice. And we all know that. We all feel it. And when you're in the middle of it, if you were experiencing such injustice, what would you immediately be praying? For deliverance. You'd be crying out to God, Lord, judge the wicked and establish the righteous. And so we have to understand here, as David is praying these things, and for all of those who are oppressed, because we live in America and we're not facing this type of oppression, this type of affliction and persecution and danger, we, we lose sight of the seriousness of sin heinous sins such as this, and also the doctrine of God's judgment, that it should bring hope to God's people and strike fear in the hearts of those who are committing such deeds. And it's this doctrine of God's righteous judgment that brings hope to David. You see that again? We've talked about in previous Psalms that it's David's theology, what he knows and understands about God, that is the source of his hope when he is crying out to God in distress. And David was experiencing great injustice. And those accusations were so severe that, again, David had to run for his life. These aren't just small matters that he is being accused of. And the theology that he applied pertained to the character of God, of who God is and how he acts. And that is what we are called to do. 
when we are falsely accused, we are called to trust in God, our righteous judge. We're not called to go and execute uh, justice in our own manner and in our own time and in our own power and wisdom. But we are to entrust ourselves to a holy and righteous judge. And that truth that God will judge righteously is what brings David hope in this situation. And David has has examined his heart in this matter. He's proclaimed his innocence and trusted himself to the righteous judgment of God. And now in this final portion of this psalm, David reminds himself of the foolishness of the wicked and how their own plans will backfire and lead to their demise. Well, we see this, this third thought that we need to keep in mind when praying for justice is that we are to have confidence in God's harvest principle. Hey, look with me in, in verses uh, 14 through 17. David writes, Behold, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. He makes a pit, digging it out, and falls into the hole that he has made. His mischief returns upon his own head, and on his own skull his violence descends. If you look in, or let me backtrack. What do I mean by the harvest principle? Well, if you keep your if you keep your finger here in in Psalm seven, turn with me to the New Testament to the letter to the Galatians. So right after First and Second Corinthians is a tiny little letter. And in Galatians chapter 6, there is an important principle. Uh, and it's known as the, the harvest principle. Uh, and it's known as the, the harvest principle because it has to do with planting and harvesting, or in biblical language, uh, sowing, the idea of planting, and reaping. So look at me at Galatians chapter 6, beginning in verse 7. And notice how how this verse begins. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That is the harvest principle. If you're going to, if you're going to sow to the flesh, the idea of carrying out whatever you want to do, uh, following sin, following your own heart and your own desires, what will you harvest? It says you will harvest corruption. If you live in sin, that's what you will reap. That's what you'll harvest. If you've been planting it all along the way, that's what's going to grow up. And come harvest time, that's what you're going to receive. But if you, in the manner that you live, in the manner that you conduct yourself, if you plant according to the Spirit, according to God's Word, according to God's leading, what will you reap? What will you harvest when the time comes? Eternal life. That is, that is the harvest principle. And you can't escape it. You're not going to, you're not going to sow to the flesh and then reap the harvest of the spirit. Can you, and that's, that, that's typical. If, if you plant an apple tree, what are you going to get? You're not going to get wheat. You gotta keep that in mind. Oftentimes we think that we can follow a path of sin and reap spiritual benefits. And it's not possible. And David, David finds hope in this. If we, if we turn back to, to Psalm 7, David begins to remind himself of this truth, of the harvest principle. And he says, hey, the, the wicked, because they're living according to sin, it's gonna come back upon them. And again, David uses these, these amazing word pictures. In verse 14, the, the wicked man conceives evil and is pregnant with mischief and gives birth to lies. Again, thinking about that, the, the wicked person will give birth to wickedness. That is what they bring forth. And again, that is, that is quite the picture. That is what David says. And then verse 15, another amazing picture. He, he makes a pit, speaking of the wicked. So he makes a pit, digging it out. And then what happens to him? He falls into the pit. So as he's trying to ensnare somebody else, as he's trying to attack and and trap someone else, what happens? His own plans fall back upon him. 
And then verse 16. Because his mischief returns upon his own head and on his own skull, his violence descends. It's like a boomerang, right? You, you throw it, and what, what happens if you throw it correctly? It comes back to you. And that, that David is, is gaining hope and courage by saying, hey, you know what? I know that those who are falsely accusing me, those who are acting unrighteously, their wickedness will come back upon themselves. If you, if you think with me to, to the book of Esther uh, in the Old Testament, Hey, the, the the enemy of the Jews who's trying to wipe them out, Haman. And he builds this gallows because he wants to he wants to kill Mordecai, and he wants to kill Mordecai publicly. So he builds this this really tall gallows to have Mordecai publicly executed. And then what happens? Well, there's a dramatic turn in the story, and Haman, the one who built the gallows, is the one who is executed upon them. And that is what God loves to do, to do this reversal. That is what he always does in bringing the wicked person's plans upon themselves. You can think of it another way. In, in Alaska and in northern Canada, the Eskimos have a, have a unique way of hunting wolves. See, what, they, what they'll do is they will take a, a large knife uh, and they will coat that knife in animal blood. And then they'll freeze uh, the, the knife and allow that, that blood to freeze on there. And then they'll, they'll do it multiple times. So there's this, this, this coating of, of blood on the knife, and it conceals the blade of the knife. And then what they do is they go and they put the, the knife in the ground so that the blade is facing up. And the wolf will come smelling the blood, and what will it begin to do? It begins to lick the knife. But as it licks the knife, it consumes that, the blood, and it gradually reveals the blade. And over time, that wolf doesn't begin to distinguish the blood that's on the knife with its own blood because it slices its tongue open. And as it continues to to, to feverishly consume the, the blood on this knife, it destroys itself. And then the Eskimo just goes the next morning and picks up the dead wolf. That is, what, that is what David is saying and how he is gaining trust of God's judgment works that way. Sometimes God will allow the wickedness just to turn right back around people. The plans that they had to destroy others, God will turn and bring upon them. They bring about their own destruction. And David finds comfort in knowing that. Comfort in knowing, hey, this, this is going to turn out because the, what they meant for evil for David, David's saying, well, I know somehow God is going to bring it back upon them. And, and what's amazing, David's saying, you know, if they want to sow to the flesh, they're going to have something coming to them. But then look at verse 17. Look at what David says. He says, I will give to the Lord the thanks due to his righteousness. And I will sing praise to the name of the Lord most high. So even though there are others accusing him, attacking him, what is David committed to doing? Praising the Lord giving honor to him, thanksgiving to God for the, the, the righteous character of God. He's committed to praising the name of the Lord, even though he's being attacked and falsely maligned. He says, I'm going to continue to entrust myself to a righteous God rather than get all caught up and bent out of shape over all of these people who are falsely accusing me. He says, I'm going to entrust myself to a God who judges justly. First Peter says something similar, and it calls us to do the same. Listen to what First Peter 2, verses 18 through 25 say. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, 
when one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So think about that. It's saying that this is a gracious thing, suffering unjustly, being falsely maligned, being falsely accused. So that's a gracious thing. You're like, Peter, are you sure you have that right? Well, let's continue to read. It says, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. You know, there's a difference between persecution and prosecution. And Peter says, hey, if, if you disobey and, and you're punished for it, you deserve that. It's kind of what David was praying earlier, right? But if when you are falsely accused and you suffer unjustly, that is a gracious thing because the grace of God sustains you through that. Let's continue. Verse 22. Oh, verse 21. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. We are called to, when we are falsely accused, maligned, attacked, we are to respond graciously. Entrusting ourselves to who? Not our human tormentors, but to God. And who is our example of that? Like, God, that's really difficult to do. How do I know I can do that? Why should I do that? Well, Jesus is our example in that. Because he suffered the most injustice, the greatest injustice at the hands of men. Charles Spurgeon, in in speaking about this, of how to respond to others, he says, evil for good, responding with evil for those who do you good is devil-like. Evil for evil is beast-like. Good for good is man-like. But good for evil is God-like. And that is what we are called to do. Not, not to treat those well who treat us well. Not good for good. Not evil for evil. But we are called to respond to evil committed against us with good. But how can we do that? How, how can we respond graciously, lovingly, when somebody is attacking us? Well, that's only if we are confident in what we've seen here. If we are willing to examine our own hearts first, if we are willing to entrust our case to God, and if we are confident in this harvest principle, and when we are confident in these truths and we know that whoever's attacking us what will what will come upon them is judgment but if we respond in the spirit respond graciously compassionately and bring our case to god we won't be judged we will be vindicated and established we are called to return good for evil evil so whether that is a hostile co-worker at work or an angry neighbor, or a rebellious child, or an exasperating parent, or a sharp-tongued spouse. What are we called to do? To entrust ourselves to the Lord. To look to Him for justice, not to become judge, jury, and executioner in our own power. And what's amazing as we look at the big picture of this psalm, as we as we zoom out, we once again see the movement that takes place, right? We see where David begins, crying out to the Lord, saying, Lord, I'm about to die. Please save me. Examine me. Help me. And at the end, what is David doing? He is praising God. He's no longer in distress, but he's he's willing to accept whatever might come. One One pastor said that God's righteousness was greater than the wickedness of enemies and thus praise was called for more than prayer. By the end of the psalm, what is it that's overshadowing everything else? It's God's righteousness, God's judgment. 
in the beginning of the psalm, it's, it's man's accusations. But God's righteousness is greater and it brings hope. And David was hopeful because our righteous God will address every sin, every injustice. What's also remarkable about this psalm is we don't know how this situation plays out. We don't know if, if David's name was cleared. We don't know uh, what, what happened. So even before David is vindicated, what is his prayer? What is his praise? In God's righteousness. He trusts that God will make things right, whether immediately, he doesn't know when, but he trusts in God and is willing to accept his lot. That's how... That's how it, this movement takes place in the psalm, where he's willing to say, all right, God, whatever you may bring about, whenever you choose to bring justice, Lord, I'm going to entrust myself to you, praising you, thanking you for who you are and how you will act, either in this life or in the life to come. God will bring judgment. And may we begin to entrust ourselves to the Lord in that same way. When we are falsely accused, when we are persecuted and afflicted, May God be our righteous shield. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to you acknowledging that you you are a righteous God, that you see and know our hearts, our thoughts, our emotions. Lord, you are even more acquainted with them than we are at times. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to see and evaluate ourselves, to develop insight into our own hearts, Lord, especially when we are angry with others, especially when we are being accused. Lord, help us to be wise rather than fools. Help us to step back, to see if there's any truth in and accusations made against us. Help us to be receptive to any and all instruction or criticism. And Lord, when we are suffering unjustly, Lord, may we commit our case to you, knowing that you are a perfect, righteous, and holy judge, that you will bring perfect judgment in all of our situations. And Lord, help us to trust in your harvest principle. Lord, that you will bring the wicked uh, to their own destruction according to their plans. And that you will also, if we sow to the Spirit, that you will allow us to harvest eternal life. Lord, may we understand these truths. May we keep them in mind as we face injustice in our own lives and the world around us. And Lord, may we encourage this world to look to you as their righteous judge. Lord, we, we love you, we praise you, we thank you for your righteous character in the name of Christ. Amen.